If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 30. We're down to the last uh, two chapters in 1 Samuel. Uh, once we get done with this, we're going to uh, go through the book of Galatians together. And then I think we'll probably pick back up with 2 Samuel. Uh, so if you uh, are turning, it's 1 Samuel chapter 30. And let's read this chapter. If you remember, David has just slipped through the fingers of Achish. He was in this impossible scenario, so it seemed, where he was going to have to fight against Israel and do what he would never want to do or show himself to be a traitor to Achish because he's been living in Philistine territory uh, for a year and a half now. And so right as he escapes that, here's what we see. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites made a raid against the Nagab, against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went on their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech. Bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and surely rescue. So David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezer where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued pursued, and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezer. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. And they gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two cups clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drink, drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you, where are you from? He said, 
I am a young man of Egypt, a servant to, to an Amicalite, uh, and a master, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites, against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I'll take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until evening the next of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amicalites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, who had been left at the brook Bezer. And when they went out to meet David and meet the people who were with him, and when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and, and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is, goes down, or for as his share is who goes down to battle, so shall the share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule in Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negeb, in Jatir, in Eror, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rachel, in the cities of the Jeremielites, in the cities of the Canaanites, in Hormah, in Borishan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men roamed. This is the word of the Lord. If we're going to learn what I think the Lord has for us in this text, we need to feel what David felt. And I think something that might help us do that will be understanding the story of a guy 
named Todd Orr, who lives in southwest Montana. We've all experienced days that we would say, that was not a good day. (laughs) Or something bad happens that, that kind of surprises us, and then all of a sudden, it even gets worse. We're almost shocked by how bad it gets. Well, for Todd, on October 1st, just 16 days ago, uh, this man went out to scout uh, a hunting spot. He's an elk hunter in Montana. And he got up early in the morning, uh, an hour before the sun came up, and he walked this trail along Bear Creek. And now this is really tough terrain. It's outside of cell service, and it's right in the middle of grizzly bear country. And so as he walked, he, he, he spent his life growing up in the woods. As he walked, every 15, 20 seconds, he'd say, Hey, bear! Hey! Hey! Hey, bear! Because he didn't want to startle a bear with cubs. For an hour straight in the dark, he would call out to give warning in case there was a grizzly bear. You might think, well, he's paranoid. No, he's smart. He knows where he is. So as the sun comes up that morning, uh, it seems like any normal morning, but all of a sudden, about 80 yards away, he sees a grizzly bear, a sight he's seen many times, with two cubs. And just to be safe, he wasn't too worried, he pulls out his bear spray that's in his hands. And just about the time he pulls out the bear spray, he looks and he doesn't see the bear anymore. And he catches a glimpse of it going a certain direction and he thinks, all right, I'm going to go the opposite way. No big deal. So he turns and begins to walk the opposite way. Still has the bear spray in his hand. And then all of a sudden he hears branches breaking. And he turns around and about 40 yards away is this sow grizzly bear at full charge. This isn't a bear that's kind of this fluff ball that kind of is running across the ground like you see sometimes. This is where the bear's low to the ground, full charge, 40 miles an hour. That covers 20 yards in a, in a second. So from the time he sees it, two seconds later, the bear is there. When it's 20 feet away, he begins to spray the bear spray. The bear goes right through the spray and takes him down to the ground. Now, Just seconds earlier, it was a normal day. He's been trained his whole life for what to do in this circumstance. And so he gets face to the ground. He gets his legs underneath his chest. And he puts his hands covering his neck and his arms covering the sides of his face. If his legs get hurt, he's dead. He's outside of cell service. No one will find him. He's got his legs tucked underneath his chest. He's covering his head as the grizzly bear begins to bite his shoulder. 
and bite his sides and his back and tear at his backpack that is on his back. And he's in this position and the attack goes on for about a minute. And finally, it stops and he's laying still. He knows he's supposed to play dead when this happens. And he slowly looks up and realizes that he survived this attack. Thankful to God, he can imagine, hardly comprehend what just happened. He stands up and he looks at his injuries, realizes none of them are life-threatening and that his legs are still good. And so he begins to run towards his truck, which is three miles away. He's running. He gets about 800 meters away, all the while paranoid. But he finally gets 800 meters away. He's running right along the creek, which is kind of loud. And all of a sudden he hears something. He looks over his shoulder and 10 feet away is the same grizzly bear on a full charge. And it takes him down again. So he gets down in the same position. And I listened to the interview. It's an hour-long interview. In fact, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Joe Hawkins, a guy he works with in Montana is friends with this guy. That's how I was alerted to this story. Attack number two is on. He's doing the same thing, but this time the grizzly's biting deeper and harder and trying to flip him over. And every time it starts to flip him over, he gets back down in that position. It gets a hold of his arm and snaps it in half with the bites, continuing to attack him. And then all of a sudden, it lets off. Well, I I forgot a part. When it snapped through his arm, he let out a yell, and then the bear went crazy on him. See, you're supposed to play dead. He knew there was still life there. So he did everything he could just to hold that position. And then he said the weirdest thing is it stood on his back with all of its weight for like a minute. He could feel the claws digging into his back. And it was just looking around. And through that minute, he's just saying. I mean, what he said is to get attacked is one thing but to get attacked twice in the same day. What did I do to deserve this? See, this is a bad day. In fact, the Bible in Amos chapter 5 gives us this illustration. Amos, in talking to Israel, who thinks they're godly, thinks God is pleased with them, listen to what he says. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. And then here's the illustration. As if a man fled from a lion. There's a guy, he has a lion after him. And a bear met him. This is a bad day. You're getting chased by a lion. You just get away. There's a bear to meet you. And a bear met him. Or then he went into the house and leaned against the wall 
and a serpent bit him. You know, see, the Bible has this illustration. Israel, you think you want the day of the Lord, but it's going to be like the type of day you run from a lion and then you run into a bear and you finally get into your house and say, Hufta. You lean up against the wall to rest and a serpent bites you. Well, David has been running since chapter 18 from Saul. One circumstance after another. Can you imagine what it would be like telling your wife and children, you can imagine this, David's saying to his wives, here's the deal. Achish wants us to fight with the Philistines. If we don't, he's going to kill us. But they're going to fight Israel. So we're all going. The 600 men are going. You can imagine there might have been tears on that goodbye. They go off to battle. But the Lord amazingly saves them so that the commanders of the Philistines said, we don't want David coming with us. Send him back. So just just picture this. Oh, finally, something is going good. And so they have a three-day journey back to Ziklag where their family is and where their children are. And you can imagine the sense of relief that finally things are going good, right? Trouble may last for a night, but there's joy in the morning until a few days later when you get to Ziklag, right? Because they're coming back. It's like the trucker, you know, the old country song of trucking for home, ready to see your family. They're coming back. They want to see their family. And they get there and Ziklag is burned. Their children and their wives and their servants and their cattle, everything is gone. You can't hardly imagine it. They wept until they had no strength to weep. Now that's bad, but imagine being David. They're following the leader. They went with David trusting him, and you can imagine what they were saying. David got our families stolen from us. All of our stuff is gone. They're ready to stone David. And at the low point of David's Life up to this point. There's this amazing statement where it says, and David strengthened himself in his Lord. And then he sought out God. He said, bring the ephod. And the priest brought the ephod. He prayed, asked if he should go follow them. He says, yes, go follow them. And then he says, you shall surely recover them and surely rescue them. It's like these two hints. These two words are going to come up again later in this text. So they go off. They don't know where the, they don't know where to go. But in the providence of God, what does God do? Here's an Egyptian wandering in the open country. He was sick three days earlier. He's left for dead by his master. He's so tired he doesn't even talk until after they get food into him. They tell him where where the Amicalites are, and as they get there, they're partying, they're living it up. Can you imagine? Think of the change of events for them. 
This is a great day as they just have all this loot from their reign. But little do they know their destruction is going to come in a moment. And David kills all the men. 400 young men escape. They recover everything. The text just, they lost nothing. Everyone was recovered. Everything was recovered. And then they get back. There's 200 men that were left by the brook. They're too exhausted. We can't go any farther. You can imagine these 400 men coming back. They're not getting any of this. We went and risked our neck for it. And David said, don't be so wicked. Look at what the Lord has given us. And then David, in his generosity, sends out part of this money, part of these goods to Judah back into Israel. It's a good political move. But he also cares. He loves them. They've been raided as well. So what can we learn from this text? I'm going to give you five things. And I think it all culminates up to learning this. I'm going to ask you to learn to navigate the valley graciously. And the first point I want to point out to you is do not be surprised by extreme suffering. Christians are not immune from these types of days. God's people are not immune from the type of day where a bear attacks twice. Where the unthinkable happens. In fact, becoming a Christian heightens the probability of suffering in your life. The Bible's very clear on this. The Bible's very clear that God was always with David. He never left him. But when God is always with you, it does not mean you will not suffer. Remember Jesus' words we looked at a couple weeks ago? I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Jesus wants you to have peace in Christ. But in the world, you will have tribulation. God wants you resting in Him, not in circumstances that go the way you would like them to go. In fact, Jesus says, you're going to have tribulation. In Acts chapter 14, in verse 21, Paul says this, when they had preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, get this, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When Paul went preaching, he went preaching to strengthen, because he says you're going to have to go through many tribulations before you enter this kingdom. And then in Romans chapter 8, one of these texts used when a person is wondering, am I a Christian? 
One of the ways we know that is the Spirit, through God's Word, speaks to us. Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself bears witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. One of the ways you know you're a child of God is when you suffer like Christ suffered. Suffering comes before glory. Peter said it this way, Beloved Christians, believers, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is what we do on these days, don't we? you got to be kidding me. Is there a God in heaven when this happens and then this happens? And I realize I haven't suffered like many of you have suffered. You've had bad weeks that turned into bad months, that turned into bad years, that have culminated worse than you could ever imagine. And Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. But here's what he says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Suffering now, glory then. So the first thing we can learn is if David suffers, and David has these sorts of days, we will have these sorts of days. Second, look at what David did. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. Look at verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. It doesn't say the Lord God. Look at it. In the Lord His God. And then he began to pray, to ask God. So let's ask the question, what does it mean to strengthen yourself in the Lord? If you're going to go get secular counseling nowadays, a lot of the counsel you'll get when things are really going bad and anger is building up inside you is to buy a punching bag. Find a way to release this anger and this frustration you got to find somewhere to let it all out. But David, on this day, which is such a difficult day, he does something that we ought to learn from. He strengthened himself in the Lord. Now, we don't get a clue from this text what that meant other than he prayed. He called for the ephod. He sought God. But I think we do get a clue in 1 Samuel. Is there something that comes to your mind when you heard that? David strengthened himself in the Lord. Do you remember when David was being chased by Saul and it was clear that Saul wanted to kill him? Jonathan shows up and grabs David's hand and strengthened his hand in the Lord. Jonathan came and put David's hand in the Lord's hand, essentially, and said, trust in Him. And then here's what he said. 
Do not fear, for the hand of my Father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, you sh- and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, knows this. I think we learn from that that one of the ways we strengthen ourselves in the Lord is we're reminded of the promises of God. That's what Jonathan did when he strengthened his hand in the Lord. So, I gave you three P's how to, how to strengthen yourself. First, know that God is a personal God. Right, right there in verse 6, He strengthened Himself in the Lord His God. If you just think God is the God out there and not your God, it's not going to help you much when you go pray. Can you say with Paul, like Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now get this. Who loved me and gave Himself for me. If you don't realize that God is your God and your Savior, then you might not find the strength David found. He's a personal God. Second, pray. David prays. He seeks the Lord's guidance. And the third thing is remember the promises of God like Jonathan did when he strengthened his hand. Don't be surprised when you suffer. But when you suffer, strengthen yourself in your God. Third, trust in God's providence. Okay, Lord says go, you're going to take them. Which way do we go? I don't know, maybe they left a path where you could kind of follow. But they take off. 400 of them take off, or 600. 200 get tired. And all, lo and behold, what happens? There's an Egyptian left for dead. You see the providence of God in the midst of suffering, in the midst of your darkest day? You need to believe in the sovereignty of God. In the providence of God. That in God's provisions for you, events, people, circumstances are all being ordained according to God's gracious plan. I mean, we could show this in virtually every one of these sermons. God is in His providence saving David and His people. If you believe in chance and that this world's out of control and God's reacting, you're not going to be strengthened in the Lord. You need to believe that when the next bad thing happens, it's all within the gracious hand of the Lord. Even that suffering. Otherwise, how can you endure if God is playing catch-up to Satan? Trust in the providence of God. Fourth, let grace make you gracious. These 
worthless, wicked fellows. Now remember, how did David get his 600 men? You remember when he was running from Saul? Uh, back in, let's see if I can find it here. Uh, earlier in 1 Samuel, I, I must not have it here. It says, all who were in debt and bitter in soul came to David. David's army is a bunch of hoodlums. They're in debt. They're bitter in soul. They're the outcast of society. These are his soldiers. So they go, they get their booty back. They get all their goods. They get their family. And they see these 200 men that were too tired. And they're like, this is, this is a, this is not right that we went and we risked our necks. We're going to keep this. We'll give them their wives and children back. And we're gracious in even doing that. These are wicked, worthless men. You know why? They viewed their life according to works and not according to grace. They could only see what they did. But David's glasses he had on is he understood the grace of God in this area of their life. You see, if you view the world through works, whatever you have will be your idol. But if you view everything you have by the grace of God, then you'll worship God. You won't worship idols. You'll worship God and be willing to let go of the very things that the Lord has blessed you with. Now, we could look at this in a, a lot of different ways. Remember Jesus' uh, uh, parable in, in Matthew 20 when He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for His vineyard. So He goes out at 6 in the morning. He hires laborers. Then He goes out at 9 o'clock in the morning. He, he tells the first group, I'm going to give you a denarius, a, a day's wage. And then when he hires the, the, the people at nine o'clock, he says, I'll give you what's fair. And then he hires people at noon. Then he hires people at three. And then he hires people at the eleventh hour. There's one hour left in the workday. He hires them. And then when they're all done working, he says, all right, who did I hire last? Here's a denarius. Here's a denarius. Goes right down the line to the very first people. And they're upset. Remember Jesus' response? Here's what He says. And on receiving it, they grumbled. So they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But He replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you. I choose to give you, to give this last worker as I give you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. At the very heart of Christianity is understanding that if you have Christ, you, you have everything. 
the person who becomes a Christian the last moment of their life? Are you going to be upset that the Lord has given grace to them? And yet, it's so easy for us to view this world, to view those in Aberdeen that don't work like you work, just can drive us crazy if we see grace being given where we don't see grace being deserved. But what I want to charge you with this morning is let grace make you gracious towards others. If you think about how Christ paid for your sins, paid for your hell, has made you a child in His family, are we going to go hold someone else's debt against them? You know, Jesus gives that parable too. Here's how Paul says it. For who sees anything different in you? He's saying, you think you're something special, Corinthian Christians? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Anything good in our life, any quality that is abnormal about you is by the grace of God. You would not have it if God did not give you grace. So let grace make us gracious. And then the last point here, tell of the victory over Yahweh's enemies. This is amazing uh, when you look at uh, what he does from verses... Uh, look at verse 26. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Now this is a theme all throughout the Bible. The Lord's enemies being destroyed being put under feet of this one great ruler. The Lord says to my Lord, this is Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Look at what David does to the people of God in Israel. He says, I want you to know that God is having victory over His enemies. David is a type of Christ in this way. He's a suffering servant who delivers a decisive victory over the enemy of God and gives gracious gifts. Is he not? David, in a sense, is pointing us forward to Christ, the one who suffered like no one else. And and it's kind of tough to see in the English, but I just want to point out in verse 8, when David prayed, here's what, he, here's what it says. Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake him? He answered, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and you shall surely rescue. And overtake and rescue come from the same word in the Hebrew. And then in verse 18, David recovered all that the Amicalites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. It's this idea of God is a rescuing God. If God says, surely it's going to be done, surely it 
is going to be done. Let me show you how Christ rescued us as a suffering servant. Here's how we'll end. Isaiah 53, I know you're familiar with this, but if you ever get numb to this chapter of the Bible, it is a sad day. Look at how the Lord has rescued you. If you're here today and you're not a believer, and you're wondering how a person becomes a Christian, what does it mean to be saved? Well, just understand this text. This is written... 750 years before Jesus was born, written even before crucifixion, Roman crucifixion, was ever invented. Here's what we read of Christ. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely, you see that word? Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's our sins. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. You see all those exchanges. We get healing. He gets wounds. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet, one of the most amazing verses in the Bible, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. See, now it begins to turn. The suffering servant starts to see fruit from his suffering. For from his suffering he shall see offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Jesus, who is perfect, made us who were not perfect to be accounted righteous, even though we're not righteous. He counts us as righteous. And then it says this, and He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, this is amazing, I will divide Him a portion. God will give Jesus Christ everything. He'll divide Him a portion with the many. 
And she, he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul to death and he is numbered with his transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Jesus, in his suffering, achieves victory. And in his victory, he divides the spoil among those who do not deserve it. So what do we do on that day? How can we learn to navigate the valley graciously? Don't be surprised by suffering. Strengthen yourself in the Lord, realizing He's personal, He's given you promises, and you can approach Him in prayer. Trust in His providence that He's sovereign. Let grace make you gracious. Don't be a bitter sufferer. See God's grace in it overflow and tell of the victory of Yahweh's enemies over Yahweh's enemies. We as Christians can go to a broken world and tell them the reason why this is the way it is is because of sin and Satan. And Jesus Christ has victory over the enemies. Come share in the spoil. Come become children of God. Let your Christ's life be accounted to you. It would be just like a teacher who has a notebook with your grade in it. Seeing if you pass or fail. And if the class was life and the teacher was God your Father and He were to get your folder and look in there, he would find an F. He would find failure to glorify God, falling short of the glory of God. But Jesus Christ in His grace said, Father, give me that folder. Let me see it. Here's my folder. I'm going to take my A+. I'm going to put it in there. Give me His F. Fail me. Punish me for His life. Give him my A plus and count him as a perfect student. That's what God has done for us in Christ. Will you trust him? You get Jesus' righteousness, his life, his forgiveness by realizing he's your only hope and by repenting and saying there is no hope in my sin. I need to trust Christ. My prayer is you'll trust him by faith. Father, thank You so much. Just another chapter in the Old Testament that can teach us so much about how we can find hope in brokenness. Another chapter that points us straight to Jesus Christ, our only hope in life. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, I pray You strengthen our faith with it. In Jesus' name, Amen.